Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Showing Up, a podcast about people. I'm your host, Jerry Sander. I'm a therapist in the Black Dirt region of the Hudson Valley, and I have taken my time putting this together because I'm trying to wrap my head around a difficult topic, namely anti-racism and what happens after you read some books, you see some documentaries, and maybe even you, in the wake of everything we've been through this summer, maybe even you get together with a group of people and begin difficult, uncomfortable conversations about racism in America. It's not easy to talk about. It's uncomfortable by definition. And I've I've become part of a group around here that have gotten together and had awkward, ongoing, difficult conversations about this topic. And I'm going to be interviewing someone. You're going to hear from someone from the group, Jamie, who uh, has her own story about how she got involved in these things and her long journey from Texas to the Hudson Valley and how her thinking continues to evolve. But uh, the main thing I want to do is to challenge you to put together these thoughts for yourself in a way that doesn't just make cognitive sense, but leads to some sort of action. Because if we all start with feeling and feeling shocked and outraged, as many of us did earlier on, feelings are like waves in the ocean. They leave, they come and go, and sometimes they're more intense than others. And then things go back to normal. But I think what has happened is feelings have jolted this country into thinking and talking and looking for clarity about where we've been as a country, where we come from, and whether or not we all have the same chances in America. It's funny, sometimes you figure out the story halfway through the story or at the end of the story. I started out talking to Jamie about politics how uh, Black Lives Matter interacts with us, our Saturday group of allies, uh, white identity in terms of uh, how it can be attractive for kids who have no sense of who they are or where they come from to get attracted to radically bad ideas. And we were talking about political stuff. And then I realized we were actually talking about our lives. Jamie talked a lot about her life And it reminded me of all the arguments I used to have in college about personal versus political. Which should the focus be on, personal or political? What a fake argument, actually. The personal is the political. Where we choose to live, how we choose to spend our money, whom we surround ourselves with. I mean, don't kid yourself. If you're living in a gated community, on a golf course, or on the water, and everybody you interact with looks like you, and maybe there's one or two people of a different race and they are both neurosurgeons or something. You're going to have a particular political view of the world shaped around that. Likewise, if you live in the suburbs um, and likewise, if you live in, a, in an inner city. So the personal and political, we're not going to divide this up. I divided the podcast interview with her up into two parts because she had so much to say. But as I was getting to know her and as I'm getting to know people in my Saturday morning group, I'm realizing this is how things heal. This is how things could potentially get better. 
getting to know people, not through political slogans, but through personal stories, connections, reactions to the political, and through honesty, even if it's awkward conversations. So some of this was awkward. Anyway, here's here's how it went. Let me identify her first, though. Jamie Moncacci is an educator, an artist living in Warwick, New York. She's been a teacher in New York City, has taught for 12 years in two public high schools, currently teaches sciences and arts at a transfer high school called James Baldwin School, is a Math for American Master Teaching Fellow and a board member of Wickham Works. Her professional and personal interests include physical computing, screen printing making, the intersections of biology and chemistry, and figuring out how to redistribute the wealth. She's an artist. She's a great contributor to our Saturday conversations groups, and I really enjoyed hearing about how she got there from here and where she's going still. Here's Jamie. I think where I start or what, I, what I'm currently doing right now is trying to understand how to balance the personal work that I need to do, the self-reflective part that I need to do because I spent the majority of my life not understanding my whiteness. And so I'm playing catch up. I have to just sit and think. Sometimes the books help me do that, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they get in the way of me actually just doing the self-reflection work and doing the sort of internal, I don't know, like how I tell my story about who I am and who I was before I knew I was white and what I do now, now that I know that I am white. Um, I was born in 1978. Um, I was born in El Paso, Texas, which is far west Texas and is the sister city of Juarez, Mexico. So it's when I was born and throughout the 80s, um, and this is before NAFTA, uh, the free trade agreement went into effect, those two cities were the same city. There was a border that ran through the center of town, um, but we would go back and forth and back and forth. And uh, the population in El Paso is predominantly Latinx, mostly Mexicano. Um, there is Fort Bliss. There is a base, a military base in El Paso. And the few Black people that were in my schools that I knew um, had a relationship to the military base. Um, and where, although El Paso too is a segregated city with regard to white folks. White folks live on what was called the west side of town. There were white schools, uh, Coronado High School and Franklin High School. Now, mind you, I haven't lived there in more than 20 years. And so I'm not, I don't know how the demographics have shifted. But in the 80s and 90s, those were the white schools. When, when you say white schools, are you including Latino, Mexicano population in that? No, I mean Caucasian, like European, European, like okay. uh, they, the the white folks segregated non, themselves. Non-Hispanic, okay. Non-Hispanic okay, So white. there you are, like uh, a mile from the Mexican border, and there's this little uh, enclave of Caucasian people in their own high school. Correct, correct. And, um, and... And, you know, one of the embarrassing things that I can think about from my childhood is mostly my friends were white. 
in a city yeah. that's got to be like 80% Latinx, right? So that's, yeah. I mean, it, the, the segregation was so incredible that the, the white families group up like this. Um, and you weren't, were you taught it? Or how did we know to just stick to our own kind? Gosh, I don't, I don't know. Like I'm trying to picture, like my father moved there in 68. He had just graduated from high school um, and he enrolls in UTEP. And now he's coming from Northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and, and I don't know, I know he worked at a bowling alley. I'm not sure where his first apartments were, if they were on this white side of town or not. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. both of my parents though become teachers, public school mm-hmm. teachers, and both taught in school, the not white schools. Um, and that, that, interesting. And I don't know, you know, what factors are at play there, right? It's the, perhaps the teaching jobs at the white schools are so coveted. You couldn't, there wasn't a lot of turnover in those schools. So you took a teaching job where you could. I don't know how it is that my parents came to live amongst other white people. But even when I think about my block, like one of the, you know, like on my street, the children that I played with were the white children. Jamie told me that her father had been killed in a tragic car accident when she was young and her mother had to work extra hard to get her through high school and support the family and enable Jamie to go to college in Texas where she was able to complete a degree in science and in engineering without having to take out major loans because times were different then. Um, and I moved to Austin and I get involved with electoral politics. I think probably because of my mother, mm-hmm. right? So I start campaigning mm-hmm. for the local Democrat that fall when I'm a freshman, he loses. Um, and I become, <laughs> I think I was pretty upset. You know what I mean? Cause you work real hard <laughs> as an activist, you work real hard and you bust your ass and, and then we lose anyway. And I was like, mm. um, yeah. and so then I just looked around on my college campus and, and college campuses have huge, especially UT has 50,000 undergraduates. So that's a ton of different organizing groups. And and throughout those four years, I was involved with the campaign against the death penalty. Um, I was involved with the, um, the socialists. And I can't remember which flavor of socialism it was because they fought amongst each other. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) let's spend a moment talking about that. This is something that people on the left specialize in, really attacking and jumping on each other. You use the wrong word. You had the wrong concept. You have the wrong praxis, way of thinking, the wrong alliances, right? Yes. Oh, yes. It's it's almost like the the right-wingers don't have to do anything. Yes. The left will just destruct itself, right? Will just destruct itself, yes. And I also, you know, so for for a while, I sold their paper outside of the Mm -hmm. UPS facility. Um, But I didn't feel very, my parents were both teachers. I didn't, it felt Mm -hmm. really inauthentic to me. I did not know a lot of working class folks. 
Um, right. And I was also having these class issues where I knew I wasn't very rich, but I knew I wasn't very poor either. I ate every day. I never I'm, had housing insecurity. I always like I always I am, I'm really glad. Yeah, I'm really glad you're bringing this up because I'm not sure we talk about social class and economics enough. Mm-hmm. And one of my concerns as we focus on Black Lives Matters movement is that social class discussion be included and not get lost mm-hmm. because people who are poor do tend to have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even, even of different races, even of different races. And they are natural allies. And this is something that I'm, I think about a lot who are natural allies and why are they not acting like natural allies? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I. So anyway, how did you get east? How did you come? How did you so end up I, east coast? Yeah, so I I studied chemical engineering, um, and I graduated in two thousand, and I was offered a job at Dow Chemical, and I just had this moment when I graduated where I was like, do I really want to move to the Houston Ship Channel, and environmentally exploit the world. Like I understood my position as an engineer in the chemical industry and I understood and could see how they get around OSHA laws and how they get around EPA Mm -hmm. laws. And, you know, even at the time there were, it was understood that Freeport, Texas and the Houston ship channel had cancer clusters. Um, And, and we knew that as engineers. And so what is the phrase? I think that's the phrase is cognitive dissonance. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I was waking up in the morning, my senior year, just nauseous and upset. And I was just like, I can't go work for them. But I can't do this. Wow. And so I, you know, called up my my future supervisor and I said, I need to take back, you know, I need to decline the offer. Um, and they were hysterical. They thought it was about money and that they were, I was being poached by Monsanto or somebody else. And I'm like, no, dude, like, I just, I just don't want this job. And so it took a while for me to figure out how to tell them, like, leave me alone. I don't want this job. Go hire somebody else, you know? And I moved to New York with a couple of activist friends. Okay, that's the sound of breaking news. Breaking news. The news is broken. In today's breaking news, this is hot off the presses. This is just scorching off my phone right now. (laughs) I'm not making this up. The New York Times is announcing that Washington's National Football League team will retire its logo. Remember, they were the Washington Redskins. They've retired that name and the logo and adopted a temporary name. They're asking people, I guess, they're doing committees to come up with a new name for the Washington, former Washington Redskins. And the new name is the Washington football team. I'm not kidding. That is the new name of the Washington Redskins pending something. And I I think that kind of tells you everything you need to know about the year 2020, (laughs) that, um, It just kind of goes with that, right? The Washington football team. And I don't even know if there's going to be any games. Meanwhile, back to our show. 
But you know what? I feel the need to play the music one more time. And we're back to showing up with no name change. I just packed up a car and moved to Brooklyn. Um, Moved to (laughs) Madison Street. Um, and I, we surfed couches for a long time until we could have put together some rent. And mm-hmm. the, the woman that I moved up here with, I'm still really good friends with her. She lives in the same apartment that we rented in 2000. And, uh, um, yeah. and people don't give up their apartments easily no, in Brooklyn. No, no. Mm-hmm. Being in New York city brought Jamie into a whole world where creativity was welcome as an artist and she found professional satisfaction as an educator. But it also brought about an entree into much more organized and somewhat organized and disorganized political expression. And I asked her, we've had ongoing conversations within our Saturday group and privately about what happens after all these marches and everything died down. What next? What are you? What are we asking people to actually do? Like, well, what happens when the marches die down? Um, right. I know for me, I kind of like am a little battery, so I go to the marches so that I can feed off of people's energy and I get a sense of hope. I think is what it is, mm-hmm. right? I look mm-hmm. around and I'm like, okay, this is hopeful. This is very hopeful, and then I can go home mm-hmm. and do. I think in like um, Mexican activists call it the ant work, A-N-T. I can't remember what it is in, <laughs> in Spanish. Um, uh-huh. But it's a phrase that activists use to be like, okay, we have to do all of this small work. Occasionally we will get together and protest, but really it's all of this sort of day-to-day relationship building, campaign work, um, you know, the, the day-to-day stuff. Um, and so those marches would feed me for probably years, right? Like it could be years between big marches or big direct action pieces. Um, and then in between, we're doing all of this small work. And one of the things that I did was to join with a group of artists in Brooklyn to create a workers co-op. And so I kind of understood economically that capitalism was corrupt. Um, I really didn't want any part of it. I knew that I was temping and so that I was kind of engaged with it, but I really wanted to be separate than that, right? Autonomous. Um, And I think activists have to, they wrangle with this tension all the time. Like, do we tear down the system that we know is corrupt and build something entirely different? Or do we reform the, the system? And I still don't know the answer. I think I do both simultaneously all the time, right? I work in the DOE, which is a gigantic bureaucracy. It's extremely oppressive. It's oppressive to me. It's oppressive to my kids. It makes me be oppressive to the, like it's, it's, it's not a great scene. You're, you're talking about being a high school teacher. I'm talking about yeah, being a high school teacher. So like I work within a system, I'm constantly attempting to reform it or to carve out little liberation spaces within it. Um, while I simultaneously try to build something different. And this different thing was a workers co-op in Brooklyn. Um, it sold art. And what, it, is, how, it is still around. Like it still 
it's still functioning. Cool. About this radical circle, though, how many were people of color? Um, uh, what percentage, you know? Yes. Almost, I'm going to go zero. Yeah. No. And so one, you, one so Latinx woman. <laughs> one Latinx woman. Yeah. One. So, you know, there's the road from El Paso to Brooklyn, and yet still, still even when segregated. we get active as white people, that's right. Now, suddenly, though, I mean, it seems to me the change that has happened in the last couple of years is everyone has a cell phone in their hand right now. Mm -hmm. And so what we saw with the George Floyd murder was the whole nation could watch this happen over an eight minute period plus mm -hmm. played out in extraordinary, horrible fashion and then deal with it, have to deal with it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it riled everybody up. And then there were the protests and then there were the marches. But here's what seems to have come from it is tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of white people have started to give money to actually give money to black led organizations and to demand some changes, white people doing this. And suddenly the system's paying a bit of attention, mm -hmm. whereas black people have been saying this stuff for decades. Mm -hmm. I mean, doesn't it seem like we are in an advanced position as white people to amplify voices that are not being listened to? Yes, I, and, and, and I'm sure you're seeing the same way I'm seeing all of these sort of frameworks around allyship um, mm -hmm. and co-conspiratorship, right? And so the thing that I like about a co-conspirator is it's not passive. Sometimes I think the ally, like thinking of myself as an ally, allows me to not move and not take action. Whereas a co-conspirator, I have to be working towards um, taking action to dismantle the mm -hmm. things that I think are unjust. And so, yes, how I think you, a lot more do that? white people are doing that. I How to do it, I think... Part of it is the self-reflection piece. Like even right now, I'm thinking mm -hmm. about where do I have power, right? That's In right. what spheres do I have power and how can I leverage that power for me, right? Because I still come from a selfish point of view too with regard to activism. Like I don't think activism works unless I'm also fighting for me. But how do I fight for me and how do I fight for people who are being oppressed? And so one um, of those places of power out here in Warwick is that I am a white parent in a public school system. And white parents in Warwick have a lot of power. They, I even have individual power. Like I feel entitled. If I email a principal, that principal damn well better respond to me in about 48 hours or less, right? And if they don't, I'm going to escalate it. I'm going to be like, how could you not reply? This is unacceptable. I need answers. And so I'm starting to, you do this map, like activists do power mapping. So I need to do my own power mapping about where I have power. That'll be hard because a lot of white people, just like they don't think are white, just like they don't think have privilege, they also don't think they have power. Right. They don't feel like they are empowered to do things, even though they use their power all the time. Right. There's all those um, memes about the Karens. Like, can I speak to your manager? 
right? In that <laughs> moment, that woman is using power, right? Amy Cooper weaponized right. it to almost That's kill right. a man, right? Like, she, right. you know, she, that was, yeah, that was uh, horrendous, the way that well, she weaponized I mean, her rightness. But on smaller levels, yeah. I can be leveraging my power. And I have to, like, I have, you know, to, I, was, I have to do it. That's, that's, I think, where I can make the most change. Hmm. How do you deal with, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, guilt over the fact that we both grew up in very sheltered, isolated, segregated circumstances where we were the beneficiary of um, what goes along with racial segregation? Yeah, how to deal with it, like the embarrassment, right? And the guilt, the shame, yeah, the shame. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. In, in, I don't know if this works for everybody. Like, I can only just speak to my own, I call it, what do you call it? Like, how you talk to yourself in your head. I know it's like, I'm mm -hmm. sure you guys have a word for it. I don't know what it is. Yeah, but, internal, it's an internal monologue. Yeah, yeah, okay, my internal monologue. So let's say this moment of shame comes. And it happened to me very recently, um, because of something I did with regard to school and to my colleagues of color at school, I had made this move um, to check in with colleagues of color. And then I experienced a lot of embarrassment and shame because some of my colleagues of color were like, don't check in with me right now. I, um, you know, and, and I can remember one very specific email. The woman said, Jamie, She's like, I have been dealing with this since I was born. Do you not think that I don't have coping right. strategies for this? Because that's how I came <laughs> off, Jerry. You know what I mean? Like in my email, I'm like, I know it's a hard time right now. Yeah. And I said, is there anything I can take off your plate? Because yeah. I understood like from reading the different articles that it wasn't enough to just reach out. Like it had to have right. some action piece, right? So I was like, okay, here's my action piece. Is there anything I can take off your plate? It's like the end of the school year. You want me to do some grading for you, data entry, paper alert, like whatever. I'll do whatever, right? So that you can take the week to relax. And the woman responded to me and was just like, Jamie, girl, like you don't think I don't already have coping strategies for what is happening? This has happened since I was born. I can do my job and cope with this. Well, that was the end of part one of my interview with Jamie. I hope, hope you enjoyed it. There's more to come. And here's where we take a breath, we let it all go, and we dance to the corny dance music. If you're in a car, figure out a way. Okay, till next time, I'm Jerry Sander, and this is Showing Up.